You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mort Sieben and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger some curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with best-selling author of the Market Wizard books, Jack Swager, for example. A must-listen episode, in my humble and, of course, unbiased opinion. Also, I want to say... A big thank you to those of you who took some time out this week to leave a rating and review in iTunes. That always helps. We really do appreciate it. And uh, rest assured, we read all of them. Moritz, great to be back with you. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Things are dark. It is evening here, south of Munich, about half past six. Otherwise, everything's good. We've had a fantastic weekend here. Great weather. It's been far too warm for that part of the year. 15, 16 degrees uh, centigrade, whatever that is, probably just shy of 70 Fahrenheit, something like that. And sunny. So uh, it's been great outdoors, cycling, mountain biking, all that type of stuff, which has been a lot of fun. How are you? Yes, no, same here. Beautiful weather, some outdoors activity as well. But of course, the list of chores always piles up for the weekend. So uh, a little bit of that as well. But um, let's move on to... Uh, a market wrap of some sort, at least. I did notice that Friday the 13th didn't turn out as scary as Monday the 9th, where the V word again played a major role in the markets. We had some news of a vaccine with a 90% effectiveness, which was hard to see that that would be real when you looked at the same time. The CEO of Pfizer went out and sold 65% of his stock on the same day, which I think a lot of people would have their own opinions about. But of course, the markets only needed to hear that we have a vaccine that is very effective in order to stage a really strong rally in stocks and energy markets at the same time and really cause the bonds to to tumble. But I think at least we did spend a little bit of time in the latter part of the week to uh, retrace some of that euphoric moves that we saw Monday and Tuesday. But... What stood out to you, you, Moritz, and to your uh, portfolio this week? Like you say, good thing that Friday the 13th in a year such as 2020 <laughs> didn't cause any major damage. I think yesterday, sorry, not yesterday, Friday, two days ago, was probably a flattish day for me, if I remember that correctly. The big news was on Monday. And, you know, some CTA trend following systems that... I monitor and follow. They've had massive PL swings on that day, you know, because they were still short, slightly short, probably the equity markets and relatively long, substantially long, maybe the bond markets. And all of that went against them, right? And throw in some currency moves that, you know, went in the wrong direction. And boof, if you're trading something at 20 vol, 
you're down eight or nine percent for that day alone, right? So it it has been a significant day. It's also been a significant day for my own personal trend following trading. It's really like you know Monday was that day where uh, I was hurting exactly from those positions, but you know to a lesser degree in terms of the percentage impact on my portfolio. And then Tuesday was flattish, kind of like maybe maybe moving down a little bit even more, but then. The recovery happened on Wednesday, and I think Thursday was also good. Anyway, I ended the week down by two basis points. So let's just call that flat Sounds because it's a, good. it's a rounding error. So it's it's really nothing. But I had this this swing down and then the move back up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm about forty basis points up for the month, but as you know, I'm still down a bit more than five percent for the year. What's interesting, though, I mean the the positions that hurt, I mean, I, I you know still have a short crude position on. Crude has been moving higher, so that didn't didn't work out that well. But all the 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 things that I made money from that have been positions that I had on on the long side since quite some time. The soybeans, soybean meal, bean oil. It's probably true for you as well, Niels. But you know those markets that the front end of that curve and those markets continues to move to the top side and. We just stay long. I, you know, it's it's the same. I'm long orange juice. I'm I'm long carbon. I'm long canola. All these long positions in markets that are absolutely uncorrelated to what's happening in the bonds and the equities save the week. Testament to the fact diversification is so key. It is for me. It is really very close to my heart. I need that diversification. I need these markets in my portfolio. Of course, they're uncorrelated which means they could also be on the wrong side and make my losses even worse, right? I mean, they could have turned against me. But odds are that the more of these uncorrelated items I have in my portfolio, the greater the probability and the greater the odds that there will be some stability and some counter effect to these losses. So very, very happy to have them in. Yeah, I mean, it does sound... I mean, first of all, your week was certainly much better than ours. Not that we saw the the moves you you mentioned uh, in terms of PNL, they they weren't that dramatic. But of course, on our side as well, I mean, we certainly had much stronger signals on the long side of bonds going into the week. Meaning, we also suffered more on the Monday because bonds were such a a big part of the PNL swing. What was also interesting, of course, on uh, Monday was that one of the few equity markets where you know you should be long by now namely the Nasdaq, um, and which has been a great market, by the way, that sold off on Monday because obviously they're now hoping everyone will get the vaccine and we don't have to sit at home and do all our meetings uh, via Zoom and all of that stuff. So high tech didn't do so well this week compared to many other stocks. And also, um, I mean, European stock markets have really lagged this uh, this year and we, we have partial or full lockdowns uh, all around Europe at the moment. So clearly the news of this vaccine certainly benefited European equities and they were up significantly more. And again, from a trend-following standpoint, that's where the short positions were, so they hurt as well. Energy, as you mentioned, certainly on our side, short on uh, on that still as well. So that was uh, not very helpful at all. So, I mean, even metals and currencies uh, also had some uh, losses on our side. For us, the same as you, best sectors were grains, as well as US and, and Asian equities did pretty well, since we do have a long stance there. And interestingly enough, the week was 
pretty volatile in, to some extent, but volatility itself, of course, sold off dramatically with this news where maybe some of the uncertainty can be removed as well as maybe some of the uncertainty from the uh, US election. But our volatility strategy was completely flat for the, for the week and, and is flat for the month as well and still up very strong for the year, unlike our um, trend-following systems, which are, are down for the year, uh, like you are. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough year. And, uh, I mean, speaking about VIX, you and I were just talking about before we went on, if you look at the term structure of the VIX, it looks really odd. <laughs> it's a little bit in limbo at the moment and, and actually kind of reflecting that there is going to be some more uncertainty for another few weeks, whether that's U.S., election related or something else who knows but they're not quite giving up on 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 some uncertainty i think before christmas as far as i can tell exactly i saw on twitter that somebody put it out the, the vix now looks like a batmobile right because you know it has this curvature it looks like sure. a coupe car like a racing car a sports car so if you just you know have a horizontal line attached underneath that picture and and, and two wheels then it looks like the batmobile so yeah, okay. there's still this um, this this elevated volatility for the rest of the year and also going into January, and then you know it it, it comes back down. Actually, one thing about performance, I I you know we also had a lot of dispersion, I think, in trend following CTA performance just this week. I've seen a couple of funds out there that actually had significant positive numbers and some had negative numbers. So I guess some of the trend-following funds, depending on the speed that they trade, they haven't been as long the bonds or maybe even short some of the bonds already. And they've already been long the equities, right? So if, if this has been your position, long the equities, short the bonds, then wow, great week, great Monday. Not sure if it's a great week, but definitely a great Monday. Yeah. And actually, I think, uh, I mean, you touched on an interesting point. I actually think return dispersion this year is something that Mm -hmm. is very really, large again yeah large dominant and and of course it it raises the questions as to why and maybe we'll do that another episode we'll talk a little bit about the reasons what decides performance mm -hmm. i think that's interesting before we move on to our questions we have questions in this week from james Antti, and and michael i wanted to maybe stay a little bit with our conversation last week with jack swager first mm -hmm. of all i thought it was an amazing episode and and jack was certainly on form some really interesting insights i mean i'm working my way through his latest book I, I have to admit i haven't quite managed to finish it yet but what i've read so far is 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 interesting perhaps i would say different to what i expected but why don't we talk just a few minutes about some of the takeaways that we yeah. took away from that conversation. Let, let, let's definitely go there. Before we go there, I want to throw one thing in, and that just you know very spontaneously occurred to me. So you'll be unprepared for that, but you've mentioned Good. Pfizer. Oh yeah. And by the way, yesterday, as you know, we had a catch up with our friends in the states, uh, where we had about a good year or so ago, we had a um, a great meeting, a, a you know great weekend get together with those guys in New York which we all really enjoyed. And, and yesterday we did kind of like an anniversary catch up on that. I didn't have as much time as you, but I, I think it was great. And one thing that I picked up and which you have just mentioned is Pfizer. And I think if I recollect that correctly, you guys were appalled or kind of like negative on the fact that, you know, here's the CEO and he uses that day where Pfizer goes through the roof, whatever, right? Up 10%. I'm not sure what the number is, right? Mm 
he uses that opportunity to sell stock. And I was kind of like, well, and so what? Why is this appalling? Why is this bad? Right? Here's a CEO. First of all, nobody knows whether he's discretionarily selling the stock or whether there's a system in place and he hits... Okay, so I want to hear your but, point, but I can just give yeah. you people mm-hmm. the, the context. So as far as I understand, this was a... Uh, this, this, the sale of the, of the stock was part of something that was decided maybe back in August. So I'm not. Mm-hmm. it's not the sale of the stock to me. It's the fact that he they decide and then he decides to release the news of the vaccine on this pre-programmed date of his own stock sale. Uh, that okay. to me, this I is think, a, this is... This is information that I didn't know. Uh, right. That, that then makes the thing a little bit more dodgy, or it does make it dodgy. I, okay, so now now I'm out yeah. of I'm, I'm I'm on thin ice here because I don't have the full picture apparently. But let's just for a second assume that you know it, it wasn't staged in that form, right? And you just have the event. There's a firm that you're the CEO of, right? And and this firm probably has one of the best days in its history because it's coming out with a vaccine for a pandemic that you know we didn't have in the last 100 years right so this may actually be one of the the like the most exciting best events that that firm can ever have right i mean it is kind of like you're you're shooting the lights out right there because you are uh, together with biontech uh, the firm that produces that thing with a 90% effectiveness so how much better can it get the news get out yeah, get some lighter on get lighter on your position. All of a sudden, you have even more Pfizer risk, ten percent more than you used to have before, right? So, from it, it does make sense from so many perspectives, from a risk perspective, but just from a hey, you know, I'm taking some chips off the table. This has been really going well, right? So, I don't. If if this were the case, just like that, I don't find it problematic that a CEO goes out and it's like, you know, well, great job, well done. I think we've nailed it. Let's get a little bit lighter on the. On the on the stock, if it is like you say pre-programmed, and <laughs> they decide to make the announcement on that day, then okay, change the thing. But anyway, and unfortunately, that what it, that that that's what what at least the 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 Twitter sphere is is. I think it was like something that part of a selling program that was decided back in August, and then I just think, okay, why do you then decide to release that news on that day where you know you are selling sixty? I mean. Trimming your position is one thing, Moritz, but 60%, that's not just risk management. That is oh, well, that's 60%. certainly not trend following. That's call, let's call it that. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. I mean, I, I just, there's been some really bad things going on with like, you know, also Kodak and, you know, we, we've heard about a couple of companies oh, where yeah, that true. really didn't, didn't work out that well. But in, in general, right, if, if you are like the CEO of a firm and you decide to sell some of your stock because you're having a great time with that company and your company has made some major achievements, you know, it per se, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay. Anyway, let's move on to Jack. Yeah. How, what, what was your, some of your takeaways? I always enjoy chatting with Jack. You know, he brings all these different perspectives and track records and trading styles and people to the table and... He's got a lot of insight into, you know, how they work and how they operate and um, where their heads are. So what what I step back from our conversation with Jack and also the conversation that I had with him for Real Vision, it is first and foremost that I think about 80 to 90% of the people that are market wizards, or at least 80 to 90% of the people that he puts into his books, they are not systematic traders. They're discretionary traders. They may 
occasionally help their trading with some models or some quantitative analysis. So, you know, I don't want to say that they're just shooting that stuff from the hip and they have like a, a gut feeling for good trading. But in essence, they are much more discretionary than any of us trend-following model-driven traders is. They are, they, they do what they do. There's the, it, it's difficult to really systematize that. And they're also taking much more concentrated risk positions than we would do. It's kind of like the antithesis to what I'm talking about here all the time, correlation maximization. They're not doing that. You know, they're making their money with high volatility and like, you know, here's like three bets in my portfolio and they're massively sized and they're very concentrated, but it's not diversified in the way that, you know, we're trading 80 markets and we're really looking to get as many uncorrelated ones as we can. They don't do it. So I think this is this is this is kind of like a a an underpinning that is there for that book. And they all have risk control measures. Don't forget that. I mean, they I think they all have the ability to run away from a position if that position doesn't work and not think twice about it, just throw it away and do the next trade, which is a an important quality for any successful trader to have, in my opinion. So they have that. They don't let positions, you know, run in the ground to zero, which is exactly what we're doing, right? We want to keep our losses really, really small. They may sometimes have larger losses, but they're they're never, you know, they they don't want to have the devastating loss. They're not married to a position to the grave, right? So this this I take away. And what I also take away is that the market wizards are sole traders predominantly, not in an operation, not in an institutional setting, not hedge funds. They are sole traders. And of course, it does make for a good story if you can turn $25,000 into 10 million, then 40, and then 80, right? Because it's just such a magnificent percentage return. It's kind of unbelievable. We don't do that. I think it has a lot to do with the raw amount of money, the absolute amount of money that those people have been able to make, that is very dominant. I'm sure they have, I mean, of course, if you, if you, if you turn 25,000 into millions, that doesn't work without volatility, right? So this is high volatility, a lot of concentration, and then it just works. So you, you have to have this thick skin to, uh, to live with these positions. Um, but I also have the feeling that there are traders out there that have substantially better gain-to-pain ratios or tenure ratios or sharp ratios, risk-adjusted returns, right, than some of the market wizards shown in that book. But they're more spread traders, arbitrage-focused traders. Their track records aren't that long. They're real. They have like two, three hundred million of assets under management. But they're within a in a firm or they operate their own firm and they are a fund. There's, it's not a sole trader. And they certainly haven't made a lot out of very little. So the story is kind of like different there. Regardless, it is an enjoyable book. I haven't read it completely yet, I must say. I'm still stuck in the first quarter, something like that, probably the end of the first quarter. So I'm not, not even to the to the half of the book. But it's it's well written. I enjoy reading it. I recommend our listeners to read it because you always take something away from these stories like you know the failures there's there's hardly anyone there that just goes from zero to hero where it's like oh here's trading 
switch on the computer and not just, you know, spits out money. It doesn't work that way. So it, it does have its ups and downs, as we know. And by reading these stories and, and you know, reading how people have changed their approaches, you know, worked on their mindset, being open-minded about, you know, the, the world and, and their trading systems, and their performance, you can, you can take important lessons away from that, I think. So uh, I recommend people to read that book and I did enjoy our conversation with Jack. How about you? Yeah, much, much of the same. So I'm going to try and find some other points about it. First of all, I would say uh, I have the book, thanks to Jack, but I actually also have the audio version of it, which I actually recommend if you want to be a little bit more efficient because it's stories, right? So it, it lends itself very well to uh, a, an audio book, I think, that you can uh, listen to when you walk your dog or you uh, go for a bicycle ride or you drive your car. So anyway, that's just a personal choice. And you can actually listen to it at 1.2, 1.3 speed, so it goes even faster. But anyways, a couple of things. First of all, I think it's inspirational to hear that soul traders can do so well, for sure, without a doubt. I do think that when you pick people like this, and as I said, I haven't gone through the whole book, so I don't, I can't say if it's for all the manager of all the traders in the book, but certainly the ones I've come across so far. And I think this is a little bit different to if you were portraying a manager like, like you know, a firm that we represent, right? Because we can't take our track record and say, oh, I blew up the first year, so I'm not going to show that, right? Or I blew up year three, I'm not going to show that. I'm only going to show my track record from when it started to go really well. I mean, we have to show all our track records. So that's one thing I find different. And to that extent, I think even when you look at these managers that we represent from, from the CTA industry or the hedge fund industry, I actually think that even though their track records may, may not look as sexy as some of these sole traders, I think they have an, a hell of a lot of value in them because we don't have the luxury of, of, of taking out some data that didn't go well for us. So I think that's one difference. Another thing, I agree with you that the concentrated bets, that's definitely different to what you and I have been brought up with and what we live and breathe and what we recommend to people. However, on the discretionary point, I, I did notice, of course, that, that uh, Jack feels that most wizards are, are discretionary. But I would also counter that with saying that most long-term successful investors that has produced a long-term public trade record, they're all systematic. Renaissance Technologies, of course, being the number one with a long track record and an outstanding one, and it's all systematic. And you could point in D Shaw and all of that, and 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 to be selfishly same promotion. I, I just want to say that take someone like a Bill Dunn that's turned a hundred thousand dollars into one hundred twenty million dollars. I mean, that's also pretty astounding. It just took a lot longer than maybe some of these wizards, right? But so I do think that's another difference where I understand. The, the, the wizards are one breed, but I do think the industry re, re, we represent, so the systematic or quant-based managers, I think we can stand up high as well, even even though we may not be categorized as, as wizards, just because our return profile is a lot different. What else did I take away from it? No, I mean, I think it's a it's a great book. Um, I love these stories, and and Jack is uh, is a is a fantastic storyteller. Uh, him and Michael Lewis are some of the authors I enjoy 
most when reading some of these uh, books. So uh, definitely recommend it. And I look forward to to making my way through some of the the other managers and hear their stories. Of course, I do think w- one other thing where I say actually where I would say that there's a lot of common ground between our industry and these wizards is really how detailed their preparations are. Right, so they may not be systematic, but by you know, but they really do their homework to a large extent. I also think they have a lot of luck on their side, frankly. I mean, there was one guy who who actually invested a hell of a lot of money in what turned out to be a pump and dump scheme, but got out miraculously at the high. And, you know, a few hours later, the stock had dropped 80%, right? Things like that, where just say, that's not skill, in my opinion, that's, that's luck. It could be gut feel, but you can't really replicate that over and over and over, in, in my opinion. So... I, I don't think they can replicate their trades in the way right. that we can, right? Their trades are always probably somewhat different. This trait that you mentioned, yeah, there is a there's a component of luck there. You may say that, hey, he had the feeling that there's something wrong, there's something weird going on, some news coming out, or the the, the tape reacting in a strange way, and therefore, you know, get out. Whereas other people would have stayed in. I don't know. But the um the point is, yes, it, it does have these discretionary traders. And one thing, so I think they're doing too many trades uh, over their careers, over their track records to um, to say that it, it cannot all be just luck. There needs to be some skill there. It's not that, you know, it's because of that one trade that the track record looks good. It's because, you know, there's there's been a couple of trades and apparently they have worked. The other thing, and I think this is, this is a reason why, or one of the reasons, not the reason, it is one of the reasons why they are successful is because they put in the time, they put in the work, and they're willing to learn. And this goes back to the nature versus nurture thing. And I'm in the nurture camp. You can, I mean, some human beings, some people are better prepared for trading with their emotional setup from just the way they were born, right? There's just... I think the the emotional coating, the, the whatever characteristics, some people have different ones than other ones, and some people, some of those lend themselves better to trading than others. But all of them, I mean, this isn't enough, right? You, you cannot just, you know, arrive to that planet with that skill set and, and be, you know, a good trader. You have to learn, you have to make mistakes, make a mistake, but every day a new one, as Larry Hyde would say, learn from the mistakes and get better and improve and find your process and and really work at that. None of those guys was just, you know, putting in five minutes and starting to point and click on interactive brokers and all of a sudden the money was, you know, raining from the skies. They were all like very passionate, very much, hey, I want to do this. I want to learn this. I want to achieve this. And therefore I'm really grinding it out. And I think this is necessary. Nothing is for free. Yeah, no, no, I mean, completely agree. I mean, as I said, I think the there are definite commonalities and putting in, you know, the hard work and, and, and all of that. The other thing that I think really is a, something that that is fantastically when, when, when you, which is fantastic to think of when, when you know that these people are quote-unquote discretionary traders. And this is maybe where there is a little bit of nature in it, and that is they have this incredible, incredible way of dealing with their emotions right where they can really leave a trade behind them 
in a split second and some of them won't even remember it i mean that 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 is not completely normal maybe it's hard work um, and on on mindset and stuff like that but it's certainly something that is really hard to learn but anyways super interesting and i think we can always learn from these and uh, i look forward to to uh, learning more about some of these unknown uh, market wizards yeah i do however want to go into some questions that we have lined up some of them sure. are a couple of weeks old because we had Jack on last week, so apologize for that. But we do have one from James. James writes, I hope all is well. Firstly, many congratulations on the tremendous summer of episodes on the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed them as always. Secondly, huge applause for the best trading podcast of 2020. So uh, thanks very much, James. We uh, appreciate that. And then he goes on, I had a question regarding whether you guys believe the rules that you adopt for the futures easily lend themselves to other instruments, i.e. if one wanted to use them for a basket of 40 to 50 equities, for instance, what uh, would the greater margin requirements of instruments like equities make it too restrictive? Do you want to go first on that? Sure. Um, I think the rules lent themselves just absolutely fine to the equities. I could use my rules, uh, rules and uh, apply them to cash equities, and I think it'll be just just fine. It'll be just okay. We've heard Jerry on that podcast uh, speaking about you know replacing the equity indices with the single stocks. That's actually something that I agree with because you can get an additional diversification benefit from breaking up that kind of like artificial equity basket that S&P or whatever index provider has created, break it up into parts that are, you know, more zigzaggy. They don't have, you know, as much correlation to one another and trade those. Now, of course, um, unfortunately, a an exchange will go out of business that has been active in the single stock future space. That is one Chicago. There's a couple of other exchanges, such as, for instance, Eurex, that do trade single stock futures. But it's not like that there is an order book where you have liquidity, such as in the S&P 500, uh, every split second. It is more like an institutional book where, you know, trades are crossed and, and blocked at the end of the session and, you know, things like that. So most people, I guess, will therefore then use the cash equities in order to get the exposure. Now, if you have a margin account with you know a broker of your choice, say it's Interactive Brokers, whoever those other firms out there, then you can go long uh, that cash equity on margin, which means that you don't have to pay the full price for it. You don't have to lay out the cash, uh, all of it. But there are other problems to be aware of. One obvious one is shorting. Not every single one of the stocks that if you do want to short, right? So I'm assuming that you want to trade long or short because that's what I'm doing. Not all of those stocks are as easily shortable as uh, you may think. They may be easily shortable right now and in the moment of now because you, you know your broker can locate the stock. Say you have a, you have a big broker and the broker has a lot of inventory, right? So the broker can access the stock and uh, it lends it to you for a fee. If you are with a smaller broker, you may not be able to even locate the stock or the fee may be much higher. You also probably don't have a historical record of whatever the borrower fee would have been, right? You don't have a historical record of the repo market that is related to that cash equity. And then finally, and this can be really, really nasty, is say you are short, right? You are paying the fee, you are short, you're running it. 
and then the stock gets called, gets called away from you. You know, this this can easily happen. The market changes. The owner of the stock wants to sell it, you know, therefore needs it back. And, you know, you're out of your short position before you know it. So what do you do then? So there's all these, you know, eventualities that uh, you have to think about. I'm not saying that they're, they're like a, a roadblock that you cannot, you know, jump over and or get over. But it's one of the things they have to think about. And this is different to index futures. Of course, index futures have all the repos of all the cash equities that are in the index included in their forward price and the futures price, right? But it's very liquid, very easy to short. You know, there's no risk of your short index position uh, being called away from you, et cetera, et cetera. There's no dependency really on the broker. It's whether you trade whether you short the S&P 500 through RJO or through um, FC Stone or through Interactive Brokers or Goldman Sachs, it's the same thing, really, right? But in cash equity space, it's different. I, I think that's great. Some great points. I want to expand on it a little bit. But before I do that, I want to add one thing as well that we've seen so many times, at least over here in Europe, and that is every time there's a crisis and equities drop, the authorities come out and say, oh, short selling is banned. Exactly. Which is, of course, cre- crazy because that's where you want to be short or be, ha- be able to protect yourself and so on and so forth. So, I mean, they they will do whatever it takes to stop equities from going down. For which, sure. is not, which is not right because it is really impacting the market in the wrong way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not all of the countries do it. Here in Europe, it is uh, France, but it's also Germany that, uh, you know, does it. I Why? think the UK did it or under the UK last... Did it, right? uh, yeah. I find that very problematic, right? We do need short sellers. We do need them to discover information, to sniff things out, and we do need to reward them, right? To take on those short-sided trades and bet against the company. This is very, very important from a liquidity you know, perspective, but also from a functioning of the market perspective where you know all the information, all the perspectives of all the market participants should be able to be reflected in the stock price. And if you're keeping one side of the market out of it by a law or rule or regulation, it's like, oh, you're not allowed to sell short, then all of a sudden their view is no longer able to be reflected. Only to protect the company, but maybe for the wrong reasons. Why? No, no company is, I, I don't think, and this is, you know, of course, you know, free capitalist speech, I don't think any company deserves protection a priori. The market forces can actually do that. You can then say, okay, if something really, really bad happens, again, Germany, let's take the example of Deutsche Bank, Lufthansa, Commerzbank, right? I mean, we're, we're bailing them out. You can make the point, okay, do we want to have an airline? Do we want to fly again once the virus is you know, over? Does Germany want to have an airline that can take me from Munich to Sydney or wherever? Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I'd, I'd like that airline to be there. I don't want it. You could also say, let, let them go to the dust, right? And Ryanair or somebody else will pick it up and, and build a better firm. It's kind of like, you know, the uh, the Austrian uh, economics perspective to that, where it's like, yeah, you need, you need these crashes and then somebody picks up the shards and, and, and creates a better thing. Fine, fair enough. I think sometimes it is okay to intervene in these situations. Everybody does it. The US does it with their airlines, right? It's kind of like we're, we're all guilty of the same thing. But in in these particular cases where the company still has a heartbeat, Right, such as Wirecard. And there have been many other examples where there's really no reason 
to lock out the short sellers, right? I find it very problematic that they do it. And the case of Wirecard has shown that it's the regulators, Baffin in that case, that got it completely backwards and they're making a fool of themselves, right? But okay, they're politicians and they get away with it and they say, well, well, we did the right thing. Well, no, you didn't do the right thing. You think you did the right thing. And all the people that you're talking to, you know, in, in the Bundestag, they tell you you did the right thing, but they're they're not traders. They're not market people. They're politicians. So we've heard that story again and again and again. But I, I, I appreciate your point, Niels. I didn't make that. You are, when you are on the short side and you're trading short, you are also... <laughs> there is this this enemy that's not invisible. You know it's well, the enemy is the wrong word, but there is this other counterparty, which is a big, big counterparty, a big, big factor in the market, which is politicians and regulations and SEC and stuff. And they may just throw a spanner in the works and you don't know when or why. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, price discovery um, is important and short sellers help us to do that. And they also sniff out a lot of fraud, as we've seen many times. So uh, so they are important. Uh, so I'm sure everybody knows where we stand on this. By the way, I can't help thinking, as soon as you mentioned Ryanair, I can't help thinking when you said, oh, should we fly Ryanair to Australia? Do you remember when they were introducing the concept that people... Could, should stand up in their planes, then they, that would make it cheaper if they would stand up. And also yeah, that they um, would charge to go to the toilet. Can yeah, I think, I think those are all fantastic <laughs> ideas. I think standing is uh, much more healthy than sitting. We know that right from a medical perspective. Uh, it's it's really good for your spine and your back if you if you stand. And um, yeah, why not do that for 24 hours? I think that's fine. And don't go, don't use the bathroom. It's... Um, You'll probably be in good COVID shape times. when you arrive in Sydney. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> it's... Uh, the world is crazy. Anyways, but um, uh, James, I hope we answered your question. But no, yeah, I f completely forgot to, to answer your question, James. So I agree with what Moritz said. The only thing I will say is that I think certainly the principles of, tra of trend following applies. If you're only trading equities, you may, however, find that rules or let's call it parameters that worked well on a diversified futures portfolio may not work as well on equity. So I would certainly be open to do your research and and run a lot of tests because you, you may find that equity markets might be more noisy, for example, than other markets. And that might then lend itself to the fact that you have to choose slightly different parameters if you're using uh, a similar approach. If you're just trading equities, I don't. I've never done the work, but but I have a feeling that that could be the case. All right, let's move on. A question from Anti. I have a feeling that Anti might come from Finland. I'm not sure. Anyways, so this is a question regarding. Actually, some of the findings of our friend Katie Kaminsky, where he talked about how short-term... So he talked about Katie's uh, findings that how shorter-term trend strategies have fared exceptionally well in the last few years compared to the more classical long-term trend-following strategies. Yes, thanks very much for robbing that in, Antti. Uh, we appreciate that. I've been running backtest on multiple traditional strategies comparing long- and short-term um, parameters and it really seems that classical strategies with shorter term parameters have been performing better for example in the last five years for instance 
everything built around Dungeon channels really changes their profile when you cut their look back period. I started from the most traditional stuff. Let's take the turtles, buy the 20 day highs and sell the 20 days low strategy. I compared it to the same exact stuff, but on parameters set on 10 days. The shorter term really performs better here and also drawdowns weren't so deep. Of course, they also shorten roughly the same proportions. I guess I'm just curious if you guys have looked into any shorter term stuff in depth. I remember Jerry has battered the problem of the deteriorating longer term trends by just lengthening his time window and just zooming out. But could it be that trends have just shortened and maybe we should look into capturing trends more on the shorter term, maybe zoom in? Great question, Antti, because that's a very valid thing which we are going to dig in. Mm. Do you want to go first, Moritz? Great question, Antti. I am not sure, though, and I want to put that up uh, out front. If I agree with your observation that short-term systems have started to outperform in the last couple of years, as I think you suggest in your question. My observation is, and you may go to a website that is called 40in20out.com, where our friend Andrew Strassman runs a classic breakout model that, you know, buys a 40-day high or low and then has a trailing stop, initial stop and trailing stop, and the trailing stop is uh, the 20-day 20 20-day 20 low or high. What we have seen there is that it only started to outperform this year, and it didn't outperform in the years prior. And I think Robert Carver has showed us the same about a month ago when he showed us a chart that compared different trading speeds, trading the same markets, just you know, altering the speed, changing the speed from you know, slow to fast and back from fast to slow. And there, I think we saw the same thing, if I remember that correctly, i.e. the short-term systems have a good year this year, but they didn't really kick the ball out of the park in the years before. So I'm not sure you know, how you see that or, or why you see that, that it's you know, performing so well in the, in the past couple of years. But as to your question, should we assume, can we assume that the short-term systems uh, will be working in the next couple of years? Well, I don't know. I really do not know. I'd, I'd love to know. I mean, if, if they worked, great. I'd, I'd love to trade shorter term. I'd love to trade as short term as I can. Essentially, I, I do trade as short term as I can, right? Because the shorter term, the more short term I trade, the lower my drawdowns over time, right? The longer term I trade, the longer my holding periods, the more I need to kind of like, you know, stick to a position through good or bad, the more volatility and the more drawdown I will have. Now, I'm not ready to make the change from my time windows, which are medium to longer term, back down to say, you know, 40 day, 50 day, 60 day breakouts or something like that, only because they've had a great year. This is not enough evidence. This is not substantially enough for me to really make any changes. I would really need to see that happening for a longer period of time. That being said, I do diversify my trading speeds. I am not just, you know, trading one breakout time frame. I'm trading several breakout time frames. Some of them are, I don't want, yeah, some of them are, are about short term. They're not really as short term as what you're describing, but they're they're quicker. 
and and I'm just I'm just fine with that for now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that that question tends to come up usually when, I mean, in this form at least, usually it's when the longer term trend following strategy hasn't worked so well. Then people say, "Oh, but look at the short term." And I, I and I do think, I mean, they work well at different times, but I'm feel pretty confident in saying that over the long run longer term trend following does significantly better than short term i'm just right now looking at the returns for the sockgen short term traders index which is probably the best measure for the uh, industry in in that sense and this goes back to uh, this particular one goes back to 2007 uh, December 7, I think the short-term traders index goes back to. And even though the um, the comparison uh, in this case is the CTA, is Sokjian CTA index, it hasn't done fantastic either, but it's certainly done better. But yeah, I, I think that, that in the long run, I would still bet on the medium to longer-term trend-following systems to do better. But here's the but. There is no doubt that for whatever reason... In the last few years, we have seen more of these shorter-term, very violent moves, such as March of this year, such as February of 2018. And there's no doubt that, that longer-term trend-following strategies doesn't and shouldn't cope as well with those type of environments compared to a shorter-term system. What is quite interesting to me, when I look at, and, and as those of you who listen every week, you know that we do the, the, the comparison and we look at what these indices are doing year to date and month to date and so on and so forth. And what you'll notice is that at this point in time, the gap between the shorter term traders index, which was far ahead than the trend following index in the beginning of the year following February and March, that gap is coming down. And... Um, and so the trend-following performance is catching up if we look at it on an industry level, of course. There are some trend-followers who probably might be doing better, but there's also a lot of trend-followers who will be doing worse and, and so on and so forth. I have to say, I've only really come across a couple of managers in the shorter-term space who have long track records that are, in my opinion, really good. And both of the firms have been on the podcast, so you can find them on the podcast. I'm not going to name names right here, but I'm sure you can figure out who they are. I will say, however, that I do think these firms run a risk of making their own life much harder than it should be purely for the reason of capacity. Because when you do well, and there are not many people doing well in the same space, i.e. short term, the money flows tend to go in that direction. So both of these firms are quite big, in my opinion, for being short-term managers. One of them is quite large in general and has grown a lot this year. And I really worry about, from an investor point of view, because I think if you double or triple your assets in a short-term strategy, and we're not talking about a few hundred millions, but but more in the billion sort of size, then I'm pretty confident in saying that it's almost impossible to keep up that level of performance. So that worries me a little bit. Now, for someone like you, Antti, 
it certainly doesn't mean that you can't develop something in the short-term space that works really well. And I will say that, generally speaking, and if you go and you read, say, Perry Kaufman's book, and 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 you were he was on the show uh, a few weeks ago, you will also hear him say that yeah, you should be able to develop something in the short-term space that looks smoother and does better, but it just doesn't have any capacity. That's why there are so few managers who are able to do that. And and actually, a lot of the managers who have closed in our industry in recent times have been some pretty big names, but they come from the short-term space, interestingly enough. Long-term trend-following track records will never look great over certain time periods because we, we do have these drawdown periods that we go through and some of them can be quite long and and quite painful and then we tend to make a lot of money in a short space of time relatively speaking and so it is uh, as Morris and I have talked about so many times it's a really hard strategy to own unless you truly buy into the concept of long-term compound returns where I still think that trend following is going to be one of the best if we look back 10 years from now in that. And and by the way, as 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 uh, Chris Cole, um, who writes a lot about volatility and has done this 100-year portfolio, as he concluded, the last 10 years or so, or maybe even the last 20 years, have been the most mean-reverting period of all times in market history. And if that's the case, and I have no way of proving or disproving it, so let's just take it for for, for, for good value then it is not on not surprising that trend following has been a more challenged strategy does it mean that it doesn't add value to a portfolio certainly not and if you just take uh, most trend following uh, well established managers and you take their performance and you take 50% of that and you add that to a 50% allocation to say the S&P you won't get something in the middle of the two you're actually going to get something that is significantly better than both of them. And that's because of the value of having a non-correlated return stream. So um, it's obviously a little bit off. Uh, I'm going off on a tangent here for you, Auntie. And we talked about this uh, as well previously, uh, also when Jerry was on um, earlier on. And also we talked a little bit with Jack Swager about it, I think. And this is the thing about whether you should trade a strategy that fits your personality. Now, some of us would say, Actually, no, because you should trade the best strategy and then you just, you know, b- learn to to live with it and believe in it because it's the best strategy. A lot of the people in the Market Wizards books and a lot of other people would say, no, no, you have to find a strategy that fits your personality. I think short-term trading fits probably more people's personality than long-term trend following. I think we're a little bit of a rare breed frankly. So I would just add to that as well. So if you can find something that works for you in the shorter term space, go for it. But if you want to turn it into a business and have capacity, I think you're going to, well, at some point you're going to struggle, but it may be at a point where you don't care about, um, you know, adding more assets to your to your business. So uh, that would be my my view. Anything you want to add, Moritz, before we go to the last question? I agree with that. Capacity is a concern. And um, the more short-term you trade, the higher your costs, the higher your bid-offer costs, the higher your commissions, this, that, and the other thing. 
and the greater your impact uh, at specific points in time when you need to execute those trades. So uh, capacity is a problem and, and we are just so much more scalable with our medium to long-term holding periods. Yeah. And it's actually a good segue to the final question of today, which is from Michael. Michael writes, I know you guys have discussed this before. I can't figure out which episode it was. I have recently expanded my trading into more thinly traded futures contracts such as oats, lumber, and rough rice. And I'm considering... Others like cheese and steel, butter is perhaps a little too thin. Trade it even for me, for me to want to trade it. Do you remember which episode you discussed thinly traded futures contracts? If not, do you want to discuss it again? I'm curious about the benefits, more diversification. Some have low nominal size and margins, cost spread, slippage limits, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, this is indeed something we've touched on before. I think it's always fine to to talk about it again we already uh, mentioned a little bit about it in the previous question of course uh, michael so let me just kick off by saying this is going back to um, what i mentioned earlier today this thing about the how efficient or how noisy is the market that you are looking at and there are definitely managers out there who are getting, and I think actually Moritz probably one of them, who are getting great results by trading smaller markets, right? We don't on our side. We we, we want and, and need highly liquid futures markets. So we're, we're not into the alternative markets. But you should listen to, if you want to go that route, by the way, you should listen to the episode I did with Florian Court because they do trade alternative markets from a trend-following perspective. But in in any event, I, I certainly think that trend-following may work better with some of these alternative markets purely from the fact that they behave differently. Very, very liquid markets can be more noisy because there are more people uh, getting in and out all the time and that might, for certain time frames at least, uh, disturb the trend and the signals a bit. So I'm not against it, but I, I also, as you as you rightly point out yourself, I mean, you just need to be cognizant about the limitations of that. And one of them is liquidity. And uh, I mean, you can probably confirm this, Moritz, but I certainly remember that things like rough rice this year had a period of time where I think it was just limit down every day for how, however long. And and if that's the case, you might not be able to get out even if you want. And I think we brought up milk earlier this year as well, where Many days it didn't trade at all, I think. So you're probably better placed to to uh, add some color to this, more. Yeah, I think some of these markets are just just absolutely fine from a PA personal trading point of view, depending on, of course, how large your personal portfolio is. But lumber is good, OJ is good, canola is good, rapeseed's good. I mean, there there's you know a couple of markets which the larger CTAs do not trade with which are fine for you probably to trade personally. Now, steel, butter, those type of markets, I don't trade them. They are too illiquid for my liking. And the liquidity that's offered on the bid or the offer, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, contract here, contract there, maybe two contracts, but the bid offer between is significant. It's not just one tick, but it's multiple ticks, right? And as Niels was saying, if you are in a position where you are forced or you really need to get out of that position, then you know you may be running into problems or that market is limited and it's locked for a couple of days. So liquidity is important. It is important in relation to your liquidity demand, to your liquidity needs. 
Dunn's liquidity needs and liquidity preferences are significantly different to the liquidity needs and preferences of Maritz Siebert's trading APA account, right? Which is why Dunn doesn't probably trade canola, but I do. And you don't trade lumber, but I do. And you don't trade OJ, but I do. Fine. There is, however, a, a distinction to be made between an alternative market and an illiquid market. Florin Court, but also what, what I do in, in a different capacity for, for a firm that I work, is trading alternative markets. Uh, but these alternative markets are highly liquid. For instance, onshore Chinese commodity markets are among the most liquid markets in the world. They are not at all alternative. They're only alternative to us because we cannot easily access them. Because China is kind of like that locked market. But you can do the homework and you can find access to these markets and you can trade them. I'm not saying that it's easy. It does require OTC relationships and is does and these type of things. But it's something that I'm very familiar working with and I have no problems handling these things. It's not exactly free. There is a fee for that, right? It's uh, done in a certain way. I'm not going into the details here, but you know, you, you can unlock that door and access these markets. You can also unlock the door and trade very interesting power markets, very interesting gas markets, French power, Italian power, German power, the Nordic power markets. And they're so different, right? There's day-ahead markets, week-ahead markets, month, quarter, yearly markets, all that stuff, right? Shipping rates, <laughs> coal, emissions, California carbon credits, the Chilean peso, uh, the Colombian peso. Are those alternative markets? No, I think they are not alternative markets. They are just that. They are markets. And they are liquid or liquid enough even for institutions to trade. But you have to find your way to get to those markets because they don't just light up on the IB screen and they don't just trade on CME. So it's a different way of getting to them. But are they alternative? No, they're markets. Why is a Chinese commodity futures more alternative than the S&P 500? It's a market. It's a good segue, actually, to just one thing that I picked up in the last week or two. And that is that there are new position limits coming in place I think not next year, but maybe the year after. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe you know this, Moritz. But just be aware that a lot of futures are being introduced to something, to position limits. Because I think at the moment there's only like eight commodities or something like that where it's really, or at least that's how I remember the um, the, the news flash. Um, and that's going to be expanded significantly. So um, yeah, something to pay attention to. And if you have the hard facts, you can email them to us and we'll we'll share them with um, our community. Thanks for reminding me of the position limits. It's actually something that we, um, as far as I can remember, we never really touched on on this podcast. But mm -hmm. let's do this the next time or the next week when we speak with Robert Carver. Position limits are an interesting and important feature of commodity markets. And they are dynamic. And there have been periods... You know, after the financial crisis, I remember where if you were trading larger positions in some of these agricultural markets, you could easily run into position limits. And that has an impact on your trading system all of a sudden. It's probably not going to be a problem if you're trading it privately or personally in your PA account. But if you are a larger firm and you have some assets, then those position limits are de facto relevant. 
And it also does something to the market, right? Because if a whole number of market participants are all of a sudden hitting limits and they can no longer trade to the full extension or to the full extent that they actually intended to trade, it does impact the market. So it is something that I think a professional trader needs to have a look out for. Indeed. And speaking of Robert Carver, he will be with us next weekend. So uh, send us your questions, info at toptradersonplug.com. We'll see how many we get. It kind of depends on how much coffee Rob will have for next weekend. Last time he had way too much coffee. I can only say that. But uh, let's hope that he picked decaf for next week. We have some more we want to share with you after this short update on performance because we are trying to keep you listening to our show all the way to the end. So we, we put some good stuff we think it's good stuff after this uh, little segue. But um, the Beta 50 index is still up for the month of November, up about 80 basis points, still down 1% for the year. The CTA index, as of this is by the way, of, as of Thursday, I think Friday was an okay day. CTA, stock chain CTA index, uh, flat for the month, down 3.5 for the year. Trend index, down 1.17 for the month, but and down 2.6 for the year. But the short-term traders index, apropos, is also down this month, down 35 bips, up 1.43% for the year. And then the uh, SockGen multi-alternative risk premier index is down half a percent so far this month and down 15.3% this year. And of course, equities had a pretty good start to November, up 10% MSCI World for the month and now up seven and a quarter for the year while the government bonds did suffer a small setback so far in November, down 0.14%. But we we started asking each other what the best podcast was that we had listened to in the prior week. And I think we forgot to ask each other last week. So uh, this is now covering a two-week span, which makes it very difficult to even remember maybe what podcast stood out. Nevertheless, I'm going to attempt to ask Moritz if he has someone that uh, something that stood out for him. Yes, I, I well, I can tell you a podcast that I enjoyed and that I remember. I'm not sure if it stands out, but it it is actually not a trading podcast. Most of the podcasts that I have in my subscription list, they are you know trading or financial markets related. This one is from macrovoices.com. Of course, this is a trading podcast. Of course, this is a financial markets related macro podcast uh, hosted by Eric Townsend. But he had a guest on, namely Stephanie Kelton, who is known for modern monetary theory, probably one of the two most important people in that field uh, right now. She's not a trader. She's not a known as an investor, but she's known for that MMT theory. And, and you know, I, I am, you know, we, we always say on the podcast, it's so important to be open-minded with trading, with all things in life. And then every once in a while, you forget that you're, you're just not that, that you're, you're not open-minded because I'm certainly guilty of putting MMT into the BS camp right away. You know, somebody tells me that they want to print money, you go like, yeah, well, no, thank you, right? I'm not, I'm not buying that. Of course, I immediately put it into the box of MMT equals magic money tree, and then they're just, you know, uh, printing the stuff until there is hyperinflation, and all of this may be true. You know, this this may actually happen, but 
through the podcast that Eric Townsend did. It's only 30 minutes with Stephanie Kelton. It was one of them, one of those podcasts, and I always enjoy that, where it doesn't immediately go into the nitty-gritty detail of what happens to the velocity of money and some response function in kind of like a monetary equilibrium, blah, 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 where you're like, well, I, I'm not sure if those models are right. They probably are not, and I can't follow it anyways. So she was very good, and, and, and Eric was very good at interviewing her. She was very good at just, you know, explaining the basics again of, you know, how a government can finance itself through taxes, issuing bonds, but of course also, you know, printing money. But it's kind of like the thing that is, is always forgotten. And, and she then goes on to explain the, that it's actually not right that this feature is forgotten. And you may like that or you may not like it. You may agree with it or you may not disagree with it. I don't think I agree with it. I haven't come around to that thing yet, but I'm open-minded enough to at least listen to it cognizant of the fact that not not the fact but that there is a pretty good probability that our economies and our regulations are moving more toward that direction in fact they already have right i mean people got sent checks people are being bailed out because of the virus businesses are being bailed out we are printing money it's it's kind of like happening in front of our eyes but we're not talking as openly about it yet but it may become more of a um steady thing that doesn't go away that's just there so i want to be open-minded with open eyes and understand it better it's very interesting before i'll reveal what my pick is but just on that topic where you say yeah things are people are being bailed out etc etc for those of you who are not danish like i am at least from birth you may not have followed this story but essentially due to covid 19 and the fact that Denmark is the largest breeder, they have the largest industry breeding mink. So what is used to, to create fur, coats, etc. But mink apparently as an animal is hypersensitive to catch COVID and, and these kind of viruses. So what the Danish government decided about, I don't know, seven, eight, ten days ago is to completely kill all mink in Denmark and essentially stop that industry. And now, of course, they have to bail them out. They have to essentially buy out a whole industry. I don't think this has ever been done anywhere. And it may not classify exactly as MMT, but it certainly is a different way of thinking than kind of free markets, etc., etc. So I will go and listen to that uh, recommendation more. It's I had not yet listened to that. I usually catch up on Eric's um, podcast, but that's great. Mine is going to stay much closer to the wheelhouse that we normally do because it's going to be about volatility. And one of the people I enjoy listening to when it comes to volatility is Chris Cole. But he did a fantastic episode on the Grant Williams podcast uh, with Bill Fleckenstein as well. I mean, it was mostly Chris doing the talking which is the whole purpose of having a guest, of course. So again, for people who have listened to him before, you may not pick up something new, but I really like the way he talks about what is going on and what may potentially happen. And my takeaway from all of this is really, and I'm a strong believer in this, is that I think going forward at some point, whenever that is, we're going to see a lot of divergence in global markets um, coming back. This stability that we try to 
maintain or, or the governments and central banks have tried to maintain at some point the elastic band is just gonna blow up and um, and we're gonna see a massive volatility and moves and so on and so forth so I truly enjoyed that episode. I always enjoy, I would say, what Grant Williams do, but 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 this in particular was something that I um, will recommend as, as my podcast of the week. Now, before we go, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. We do, they really help us. To be very frank, they really help us to uh, keep up with all the other great podcasts out there. They help us in the way that that other people have better chance of discovering that. You can also, of course, go to the YouTube channel and help us by um, giving it a like, giving it a subscription. That also helps with the algorithms. And of course, you can help us by sending your great questions like we had today from James, Antti and Michael, because we think that by listening to what is important to you, we deliver more value to uh, everyone listening out there. So please do info at toptradersonplug.com. As I mentioned, Rob Carver will be back next week. So uh, he will be there to answer all the questions that Morris and I can't, which is great. With that said, I think it's time for me to say thanks so much for listening. Morris and I are grateful for your time and for you coming back every week. And we look forward to being back with you in just a few days. In the meantime, be well and uh, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.